Since 1971, Beautio Books has specialized in ornithology and natural history. They're a small, family-owned and operated mail-order bookstore with the largest selection of new, used, and rare birding and ornithology books in the world and a knowledgeable staff ready to help. Find field guides, travel guides, ornithology, natural history, humor, even children's books to inspire the next generation's love of nature. Visit beautyobooks.com to find everything you're looking for, and ABA members receive 10% off. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm Nate Swick. It is T-Mib time. This month in birding, I'll make things quick off the top. But if you are a fan of perfectly executed pranks, this month was a, a good one in the birding and conservation world. The duck stamp entries came out this month. They announced the winner whose work will appear on next year's stamp. Uh, there were some really wild submissions this year. As you might know, this year every stamp was required to include what they called a hunting element per a rule change that has since been rescinded. So there's some pretty amazing submissions this year, including a redhead aiming a gun at a hunter, uh, a duck theme take on the Vermeer masterpiece Girl with a Pearl Earring, in which the girl is a blue-winged teal, and a couple of others that were clearly intended to mock this rule in a legitimately masterful way. Uh, you know, we've been laughing about it for about a week. It turns out the whole thing was a setup by the HBO program last week tonight with John Oliver. They commissioned the pieces. They submitted the pieces. None of the pieces <laughs> made the finals, uh, unsurprisingly enough. Uh, and, but now they're auctioning that joke art off with the proceeds to go to the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, which is a really cool thing. Anyway, a link to the art, the auction website, and the segment of the show, if it's available, uh, in the notes. Uh, note language, if that is a concern. Anyway, my hat is off to John Oliver and crew. Uh, but let's get to the good stuff. We have a great panel for This Month in Birding. Jody Allaire, Ryan Mendelbaum, and Jordan Rudder. We talk finches, we talk cutthroat birding, and more after this week's reference. This is the Rare Bird Focus for the end of September 2021. Fall is probably the best time of year for birding on the West Coast, and September is the peak. Lots of birders in California and lots of birds to see. The most exciting from a rarity perspective was a lesser sand plover seen in Santa Cruz County this week. This highly migratory East Asian shorebird is a fairly regular vagrant to Western Alaska, but much rarer elsewhere. Many birders were able to get fantastic looks at this classy plover for several days until it was, apparently, taken by a merlin, the scourge of vagrant shorebirds worldwide. Couple first records to note this week, both hummingbirds. In South Carolina, a female broad-tailed hummingbird was captured and banded at a station in York County, just south of Charlotte, and up to Vermont, where a Mexican violet ear was visiting a private residence in the state. Sorry, no more specific info was made available. But this not only represents a first record for Vermont, but only the third species of hummingbird on the Vermont list. The others, obviously ruby-throated and rufous. South Carolina, for comparison, now has 10, though, interestingly enough, Mexican violet air isn't one of them. That's all I have for you this week. If you want the entire roundup, check out the Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org rba. And if that isn't even enough to sate your rare bird craving, join ABA Rare Bird Alert on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. It is the last episode of September, and that means this month in birding with a panel that I promise will be as enthralling as the Doppler radar on a heavy migration night. In alphabetical order, first, uh, he is the Director of Community Engagement for Birds Canada and is a frequent guest on All Matters Canadiana. It is Jody Allaire. Hi, Jody. Hey, Nate. Great to be back. Next up from the Finch Research Network, among other things, which is a connection we will mine here in a bit, and easily the most likely person to explain how birds use quantum fields to migrate in a way that I am likely to understand, is Ryan Mendelbaum. Welcome back, Ryan. It's always good to be here, Nate. And from the American Bird Conservancy and Bird Names for Birds, our good friend, Jordan Rudder. Hello, Jordan. Hey, it's always an honor. Uh, before we get started here, I do want to take a minute to acknowledge the staffers at Audubon who were involved in the Audubon for All Union Drive, which we learned today, not more than about an hour before we did this, was successful. I know it has been a uh, tumultuous two years for Audubon for a lot of reasons. And uh, I just want to shout out all our friends and kind of wider bird community colleagues that made this happen. And I, I am just 
you know, so happy for them that they were successful. And uh, I hope only good things for our friends at Audubon, um, for the largest bird conservation organization in North America, and for you know bird conservation as a whole. So congrats to all of you out there. I hope you're enjoying your successes. Let's let's talk about fall birding. Um, I do want to ask you how your birding has been lately, because this is such an amazing time of year, my, my favorite of the birding seasons. Uh, and in mind of that, I will toss in a suggestion from a Twitter follower uh, at JKD, who asked for your five most infuriating fall warblers. I'm not going to let you do five. I don't think we have time to do five a piece. That'd be 20 warblers. That's like practically all the warblers. Anyway, um, you can give me one or two. I might allow two. So what are your one or two most infuriating warblers? I suppose I take that to mean like the warblers that are most likely to kind of throw you when you see them in the fall. That's how I interpreted it. You can interpret it however you like. I'll start. I have black pole on my list. Oh, the classic. I know the feet color is important, but those two, sometimes leaves get in the way and Mm -hmm. those two always trip me up. We, We see a lot of those on the What's This Bird Facebook group this time of year. And, uh, one of the things that I've always liked about bay breasted in particular that kind of differentiates it from black pole is that their their wings the non wing bar part of their wings are always like much darker than a black pole i don't know if you guys have noticed that and it makes like the wing bars like just really snap just like be really really bright black poles have really sharp wing bars too but they don't seem to stand out as much i guess i can go next i mean it's got to be this is probably the uh, sleeper pick, but Cape May Warbler just really... Oh, that was going to be my... Sorry. Well, I mean, <laughs> you, you go in and Cape May in the spring, you know, the males are just the most amazing, like, tiger-striped yep. warblers. Mm. The females are also really pretty. And in the fall, you have these birds that just look like pine warblers that got tossed around too much. You're like, yeah. what the heck's going on with that bird? And then it's just a Cape May Warbler. Yeah. Yeah, that's a tough one, especially those, like, first fall females. Uh, if you can see a lot of those, I run into those every once in a while, and they are just like, they look like nothing. They look like a, a tea bag, like a used tea bag. Yeah, it's like an orange yeah, brown yeah. warbler somehow. Super tiny female brown headed cowbird. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'll go, I'll give a, a Western one and one that I've been dealing with the past month, but uh, Morning and mm. McGilvery's Warbler, um, especially when you get those, those fall ones. And I know that's, you know, maybe that's more of a Western confusion, but part of it is I think if you get them in good light, like they're quite variable. If you get them in good light and you get good clear views of them, like they're totally doable. But the problem with them is they're yeah. so skulky, right? So you only get these partial views or you get these like views of their back end and you can't really see the front very well. So um, they're surprisingly variable as I'm, I'm coming to learn out here in Alberta. It's, yeah, some uh, of those morning tricky. warblers uh, have quite a bit of an eye ring, that broken eye ring. Uh, and, you know, you think of that as like the main field mark from McGillivray's, but when War Morning shows that, like what what hope do any of us have? Yeah, yeah. It's definitely like mul- multiple field mark yeah. uh, type of ID for sure. Yeah. So I've got one that you guys didn't say. Uh, thank goodness. Although I was going to mention Cape May because um, that's that's always a tough one for me too. But uh, Prairie Warbler. Now, you wouldn't necessarily think it, but like sometimes those really young Prairie Warblers, they don't look like anything. And I, I, I've had a couple, at least a couple occasions where I've seen one of those kind of first year prairie warblers and like, I cannot place it at all. It's like just short circuits, the birding part of my brain. And I can't figure it out for, I don't know. I've had, sometimes it's 30 seconds. Sometimes it's five minutes. Sometimes it's like, I take pictures and then go home and then figure it out. That's, that's a surprisingly sort of tough one, at least down here where I live. I don't know if y'all have a lot of prairie warblers up where you are, but um. for us, that's definitely one where it's like they're so common in like mm-hmm. the spring, and they breed around not in the city, but around here. And so then when you run into one on migration, yeah. and it doesn't look the way that you're used to. You're just like, yeah. what's going on there? Totally. So that was about five, right? That was all all of us together. We got five, maybe six. So bonus, bonus warblers. We should just toss in there Connecticut just for everybody's. <laughs> I sake. don't see enough of them to be confused by them. That's the problem with them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, common yellowthroat, I guess, is another one on there because they can look like practically all the birds that we've mentioned here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> we'll we'll get into the bird news. I'll I'll start with kind of a fun one that I found in Scientific American that really is. I, I really I guess I want to talk about the title, which is "Extreme Birding Competition is a Cutthroat Test of Skill, Strategy, and Endurance." And I get the sort of sportification i don't know if that's a word the kind of making a sport of birding and i guess big big day birding is about as close as we come to like uh you know really well it's the world series of birding and the super bowl of birding and we name our our stuff after that 
But uh, I just thought it was funny. It's a cutthroat test was kind of funny because I'd never think of anything as anything birding as particularly cutthroat, even like big competitions like World Series of Birding. The people that they interviewed here, um, we were talking about this back channel on the ABA Slack feed, uh, Frank Gallo and Nick Bonomo. And uh, we we're like, yeah, yeah, none of the, those guys are like hardly as cutthroat. They're some of, some of the nicest people that you run into. And like cutthroat is not the word I would use to describe them. Anyway, I'm curious what you think. And if there is like, is, is there a cutthroat aspect of birding? I'll chime in that I feel like the representative or mascot for this at least should be the cutthroat finch. Yeah, nice. um, <laughs> just sharing in case, in case others have never heard of this bird, uh, Google it. But I... I don't know. I mean, so I am lucky enough to have done the World Series of Birding for several years, mm-hmm. especially when I was a teenager. And I know that we like talked a big game and like tried to make it super competitive <laughs> and everything. And maybe it's the past couple years that has really changed my mind, my mentality of all of this. But I feel like cutthroat just has so many connotations and is actually a a hurdle or or a barrier for what we're all now trying to help birding be which That's is true. super inclusive and welcoming yep. and i don't know if you were telling me to like hey jordan you should join a cutthroat x <laughs> hobby uh community i would be like do i exactly and i feel like you know there's already enough that we have to try and overcome with different rba groups and the rare bird alert groups and you know different subsets and listers and that competition alone that i kind of am like can we just not call it cutthroat (laughs) one of the things that i thought was funny is that you know i just thought of this while you were talking is that the champions of the flyway which is this big birding competition in israel uh every year and it is like it is it is serious like the people in it take it seriously and uh there's really good birders involved but one of the cool things about it is this this whole Jody, I know you've done it. There's this whole culture of sharing the birds that you've seen while you're competing. So you're competing against these teams. And if you see something cool, then you send it to the WhatsApp group that everyone is on so that they can get it too if they want to. So like even even like in our most competitive moments, there's this ethos of sharing, which I think is such a big part of of birding and why why we like it or why I like it. You know, I, I, I did find the article kind of funny to call it cutthroat because it certainly <laughs> wasn't in the article whatsoever. <laughs> right. <laughs> can, can there be segments of birding culture that uh, are maybe not friendly to everyone or not as inclusive? For, for sure, right? And, and I would say some of the gatekeeping that you can experience uh, in the birding world, you could argue is a little bit cutthroat um, in terms of, you know, wanting to keep keep others away and I don't know. I feel like I've said it before, but it's one of the things I really dislike is gatekeeping. But you know, with big days specifically, and I actually really enjoy doing big days. And you know, Champions of the Flyway, as you said, was such an amazing experience because everyone was helping one another, um, mm-hmm. and and I loved that so much. Like I thought that was really great that everyone was sort of pulling for each other through the whole thing. And my experience with with doing big days in in Canada and, and done a few of them are always tied to doing. Uh, birdathon, the Great Canadian Birdathon, where we raise money mm-hmm. um, for for bird conservation. And for me, uh, doing a big day is is one of those great excuses to get together with my friends. That sometimes you have to make excuses to go birding together for a day, and 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 that's often when you're doing a big day or doing a birdathon is that opportunity to get together yeah. with your friends. And to, to me, that's the best part of the whole thing is not going for some record. It's actually spending that quality time with, with people that you may not get to see. Uh, throughout the year. Yeah, I actually find, in my opinion, it gets uh, less cutthroat and much more fun as you kind of tighten the scope. Like, actually, the, to me, the biggest, most cutthroat is the sort of the big year, especially if the ABA big year, the world mm. big year. I don't really care about that stuff. I don't leave Brooklyn. And then if you like <laughs> zoom in, you know, you have, for example, like the Galbatrosses who did the yeah. World Series of Birding. You've had on them on here um, just looking for female birds in the World Series of Birding, which is so awesome to me. And that's no longer a competition. It's just like an amazing experience. And yeah. I do a lot of county big days. Um, and it's so fun to just find other, you know, run into your friends and just like meet up for pizza and 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 show new birders. Because a lot, you know, we have uh, the Brooklyn Bird Club, which you know, really does a great job of attracting young new birders and having them participate and learn about, you know, oh, how did you know that was a Black Bernie and Warbler when all you heard was like a couple of notes of the song? It's like, oh, well, this is how you learn. 
so I like using them as opportunities to like bring people into the community, be a little silly, allow birders to really be themselves. That's the part that I, I don't, it's not cutthroat, right? It's just like fun. Yeah. It's fun education. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And I, 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 knowing what I know about how these sort of things are written, I, I suppose we can't um, fault Kate Wong, who is the author of this actually really fun, long piece for a headline that she probably did not, <laughs> she probably did not write. Um, I, I think that in some ways, you know, John Weigel went out and absolutely destroyed the ABA area big year record. And in some ways, I mean, it was, it was a cool accomplishment and kudos to him for doing that. But like in some ways, he like broke the big year. Uh, at least like trying to get the biggest number sort of big year because he set a number that's like really, really hard to reach. I don't know if anyone will, except for maybe John, if he decides to do it again. But it's uh, allowed people to sort of think about other ways to do big years, which I always found, or big days or big years or any of that stuff um, that I think is so interesting. Like, oh, let's do a green one. Uh, You know, we're not going to break any records, but we're going to go try and better our own record. We're going to go try and you know, see as many species as possible by bike or female birds only or herd only or, you know, there's all these cool little iterations of the how you can enjoy birding that I think is really neat um, beyond this sort of big day kind of classic, you know, run around the state, try to see as many things as possible. Also, shout out to Kate Wong, because honestly, yeah. how, how lucky are we to like have an article in Scientific American about like That's the really niche birding thing? That's true. It's <laughs> absolutely true. It is in some ways the niche birding thing, in some ways like the birding thing that I think probably resonates with like non-birders the most. Like they get it. Like they understand, oh, you're trying to break a record or whatever. That's that's understandable. And it's fun to see it keep going too. Yeah. I mean, this is just the 2021 article, but I know that there's been ones in the Washington Post magazine. Mm-hmm. I think Steve Carell did one on the John Stewart yeah. Daily Show. Yeah, a while ago. Like, yeah. you know, this this uh, fascination and like drive to go and see birds. I just it's it's there. It's continuing. Yeah, happy and, to celebrate. Uh, I do think I do think Kate is among our numbers. Uh, I know that she's a passionate birder in Connecticut, and I've oh, seen there her. You go. That's how she got it. about her list yeah. and stuff. Yeah, she was like embedded. You know, the winter finch forecast is birders most ex- one of the most exciting moments of the fall because yes. you basically find out what your winter birding plans are. So um, the new forecast, by the time you're listening to it, it would have just come out. So just some highlights. Um, do you want to hear it? Yes, I do. Can't beat last year. <laughs> no, um, no. Is the summary. No. Um, but what we're calling this year is going to be an Echo Flight Plus. Ron Pittaway was fantastic at doing the Winter Finch Report, but y'all are so much better at the marketing aspect of it. I'm just really impressed with Echo Flight Plus. That's a really great... Uh, Thank you. Sounds, that was Matt came up with that. Yeah, it sounds like a, uh, a new streaming network that I need to get. Cool. I need to get on the Finch streaming network. Anyway, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> So we're calling this year an Echo Flight Plus. Uh, and what that means is that, no, we're not going to beat last year's Super Flight, of course. Uh, the summary of this forecast is, yes, as a non-eruption year, this is going to be a great year to look for finches in some of their traditional hotspots. So that's the Adirondack Mountains, Algonquin Regional Park, uh, Saxonbog in Minnesota. However, because of how incredible last year's flight was, and combined with a couple of factors in Canada right now, so that's the droughts, the fires, uh, as well as this uh, wild spruce budworm crop that's still going on mm-hmm. in the Northeast, uh, we can expect to see some finch movement, potentially some movement of white wing crossbill, um, potentially some of those spruce, bud, spruce budworm specialists. We might start seeing some even gross beaks come south. So uh, I don't think we're going to see these finches, you know, hitting the Gulf Coast, but it's going to take work. If you're a finch lover, you're going to have to go out. You're going to have to find the right habitats and the right food sources. But uh, don't despair. Yes, it is a finches in their usual habitat year, but there is definitely some chance for exploration. Uh, and obviously, I encourage um, you all to go on the Finch Research Network website to read the full forecast. And then, you know, shouts out to uh, Tyler Hoare and Matt Young, who have just been like killing it, putting out some amazing work on finches right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we would have thought losing Ron Pittaway would have been like a huge deal, but man, Tyler and, and Matt have just taken everything Ron did and just made it bigger and better. And it's uh, it's really cool. As disappointed as I am that we're not going to get uh, Evening Grow Speaks, maybe not all the way down here this winter. I did see him last winter, so I'll I'll survive. 
Yeah. And I mean, what's so cool, actually, and what I've really loved about even kind of volunteering for this organization is just like the inner workings of how the forecast works is so cool. Yeah. I mean, Tyler has this network of people across the entire boreal forest and um, some places have multiple observers and they're just ranking trees. You know, all they're doing is saying, OK, how does the spruce crop look? Mm -hmm. How does the mountain ash crop look? How does the pine crop look? And then he's using that to kind of create this whole big picture of, of the movements of the finches, which is, you know, I think people knew that Ron was doing that, but just seeing it so transparent and, yeah. and even inviting people to get involved through various Facebook groups and through the network has just been such a, a cool evolution in finches in the North America. Totally. That spruce bedworm thing is, is so fascinating, given that that was a, a COVID-19 you know, they weren't able to uh, to spray because of COVID and now there's spruce bedworms all over the place. And, and yeah, it's really cool how these little, little ripples provide these like big waves down the, down the road. I was actually in Northern Michigan on vacation last year uh, in the summertime. And I, as you may know, have started getting into moth watching uh, and I put up my moth sheets and it was wild. There were just hundreds of spruce budworm moths on hmm. the sheet. And uh, and then I heard crossbills. Crossbills aren't a spruce budworm specialist, but I was like, all right, this is the culmination of everything all coming together. Yeah. Jody, how's it going up in, uh, have you noticed any finches yet up where you are? Um, the only thing I've really noticed the past <clears throat> couple of weeks, and, and this has actually been a really fantastic migration fall here in Southern Alberta, just for whatever reason, just warblers, just on really great movements of warblers. But in terms of finches, the only thing I've really seen of significance are, are pine siskins. Of the past two weeks, I'm getting flocks of like 50 or 60 birds sort of moving in and moving through uh, the valley. Um, so that's that's all I'm seeing right now. And uh, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I was having lingering red crossbills of a variety of types for right through the winter and, and the spring, even in through May. Um, but all the crossbills that seem to have been hanging around have uh, have moved on here. Oh. It's pretty fun getting the forecast before everyone else. Just saying, this is pretty, uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm pretty pumped. I'll point out that um, this year, um, I would also keep your eyes open if you're living in the upper Midwest uh, and sort of the Western Great Lakes region, especially with the forest fires and droughts in the West, especially even in yeah. like the Mountain West, you know, people should be keeping their eyes open for stuff because there's going to be a lot of movement due to that. I, I clearly just have to give thanks for my life or evening gross week last year. Yeah. They were a nemesis bird for Gabriel and I. And so we went out several times and then it was like the day after Christmas or something, pouring rain. We were like, no, we're going to go. And we're on the CNO canal. And then all of a sudden we're totally drenched and it's like, there they are. <laughs> and so it was awesome. But again, just giving thanks. Yeah. So this month, the New York Times published a piece that is cartoon and quote based, and it goes through um, various individuals in the New York region, New York City specifically, that are birders and commenting on their gear and specifically how much they have paid. And this does include both binoculars as well as travel. Um, and I got to say, I'm shocked, but not surprised. Um, most of the people interviewed or at least that made it into the piece are older, usually retired, um, and they all have top of the line gear, which I think is always what, especially if you really identify as a birder, is what you dream of. But it also makes me really angry <laughs> because it highlights the barriers to birding. Um, I will say, especially since I'm on the ABA podcast, I give thanks for my binoculars because they are from the ABA hey. Young Birder of the Year contest. So I would not have my binoculars without the ABA. So thank you. I mean, I didn't give them to you, but I, I, I'll, I'll <laughs> take your thanks. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just, so they are, they are like a pair of binoculars and I'll admit I probably wouldn't have them without the ABA, but you don't need really expensive gear. Yeah. Maybe it helps. Maybe it's really nice, especially I think with the rise of birdability and emphasizing that there's more to birds than what we see or what we hear, that it's about the birds. I really just had this reaction to this article of saying, you know what, there are free options for field guides. There are really good, you know, $100 to $200 binoculars. And it's just about getting out there and appreciating the birds. Um, I also don't really like how much judgment and um, sizing up, so to speak, we all do of, of our gear. On the one hand, you know, I'm saving up for a new scope and I don't, you know, 
birds are my life. So that, that kind of is why, but, um, I wish there was a way that we could all just enjoy the birds equally. Yeah. Fair point. Um, I will say though, that I did enjoy the art. The art is really nice. And it, it, was, yes, it was kind of a unique is... article uh, and the art was nice. <laughs> Even if the, the sentiment was, I don't know, very New York Times, I suppose. But I don't know what I necessarily mean by that. But there was sort of a status thing, which, which fine. Like if you have nice binoculars, I have nice binoculars. I bought them like 10 years ago um, and I still use them. Um, so I feel like I've gotten my money's worth out of them. And uh, I love them. Anytime you've got like a gear based hobby. Um, there's an aspect of that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, photography, fishing, all of Cycling, these other things, like hiking. you keep going <laughs> yeah. and it makes sense. I guess, I guess ultimately I'm a little confused as to what the point of the article was. That may be too. Well, first of all, I mean, I did like that it was in the Bronx, which is a region of New York city that's heavily underburdened. So shouts out to that part, I guess. Um, but <laughs> I will add that, uh, you know, this is like the exact sentiment that I like am trying to avoid when I tell people about my hobby and like, Oh, there are literally, I have a huge house list and I don't have a huge house list because I have cool gear. I have a huge house list because I spend a lot of time in Brooklyn, like looking out my window and often like I identified my house, yellow bellied sapsucker. It made my day and I didn't use binoculars or any gear at all to look for this bird. I just looked and I was like, oh my God, a yellow bellied sapsucker is in my tree. This like sentiment that like anybody can be a birder and there are birds everywhere. You can be a birder everywhere. All you need is maybe a pair of binoculars, but honestly, like if you're an ear birder, for example, you don't even need that. I think that you don't need to, I don't like the idea of just like sitting here and comparing our, you know, camera lens sizes when it's like, just look at the freaking birds. That's why we're here. Yes. It is interesting. You know, when I think about in the summer, how much I don't use my binoculars when I go birding, because it's, I've gone out on walks specifically to go birding in like June, July. And not even use them, not even put them to my eyes once because everything's leafed out. You know, I hear everything. And so I can just kind of make my e-bird list that way. Yeah, it is interesting. Yeah, I've got this 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 tech, this gear that I, they don't always use. I'm not sure if I have too much to add here. I think uh, I think this is well covered. <laughs> um, I didn't I didn't love the article, you know, and I think it it was certainly biased towards showing that wealthy retired demographic of birders that have all the gear and and obviously this you know these are the people that are the clientele that go on my birding tours you know or the people that can afford that's to true. travel and, and all this stuff but i would have liked to see a little bit more balance i think that's the the main thing you know and I, think I think that's the thing that, that you guys yeah. touched on like you don't need all that stuff for birding and then i would argue that that demographic of birding that was featured in the article is is not the majority of, of people who are mm -hmm. birders or who are birding, right? They're the vast majority of people that, you know, have, might have a hand-me-down pair of binoculars, maybe you're just learning the stuff, that they're not, like, equipped to the nines. So that, that's my only thing, you know. Sure, the artwork was great, but I would have appreciated a little more balance because it does create that sort of negative stereotype yeah. of what birders are supposed to look like and have. And I just don't like that as, as a rule. I, I don't feel that is that it's true. Especially here in New York City. I mean, I guess everywhere, but in New York City, yeah. we have, this is the nexus of so many amazing organizations who are working on making birding accessible for, you know, women, for queer people, for underrepresented groups that have been traditionally left out of birding. There's just so much of that in the city and in kind, like when right. you go out, like I'm not, oh, I'm, I'm seeing like a couple of like people with huge lenses, but I'm seeing a ton of people who look like me, who are, you know, you know, who are, who would never have entered this hobby if it wasn't for just how amazing and vibrant it's starting to become from the younger, less exorbitantly wealthy generation. Well, I think that goes back to who they actually uh, featured. I don't know if they, I guess they interviewed them, but in terms of who made it into the piece yeah, and yeah. it totally disregards the, the pandemic birding boom. Yeah. Right. You have all of these like folks at home that are now appreciating birds just listening around to this their... podcast. I've heard, I know they're out there. You've yes. emailed me. <laughs> which is awesome and maybe you got the free merlin app maybe you're just looking outside your window it is the subset that's being focused on that is now perpetuating the birder stereotype and image and things that we're trying to get past almost yeah. um, or at least be more inclusive yeah i mean there's always going to be always going to be those sorts of people 
engaged in the birding community. And yeah. great. And that's great. If, in a lot of ways, those are the people that are funding a lot of conservation work and they are, you know, traveling and supporting livelihoods in other parts of the world. That's all, that's all a great thing. And I don't mean to dismiss that at all, but as you say, and I think you guys have done a great job saying it, it's not the only thing out there and it's not even the most common thing out there. And, uh, it would have been nice to see a little bit more of, uh, all the rest rather than like yeah. five nearly identical stories. <laughs> and then one guy at the end. <laughs> yeah because i also want to give a shout out there's lots of um like backpack programs where you can yeah, rent, yeah, like, yeah. a pair of binoculars and a field guide at like libraries or nature clubs or whatever and i think that's amazing too like you don't even necessarily have to buy your own gear if if you're able to take advantage of these programs sure. because it's just all about getting out there it's about the birds it's about the birds this is very uh, recent. It just came out as of like right before <laughs> recording the podcast. Um, and it's a paper published by uh, Nicola Copper and, and her lab at the University of Manitoba here in Canada. And the paper was published in Science Advances, and it's called Reduced Human Activity During COVID-19 Alters Avian Land Use Across North America. I think there's lots to talk about here. Um, some of these results, I think, are things that maybe we would have expected. One of the things, in addition to reading the paper, there's a great uh, article that j was just published in the Globe and Mail here in Canada uh, by uh, Ivan Semenyuk, who's a just fantastic science writer. And one, one of his first lines in, in, in the Globe article is, birds are just not that into us. <laughs> I really just think that captures it pretty, pretty nicely. Ouch. Yeah. What, the paper basically is looking at is that they used eBird data looking at March, the months of March to May 2017 to 2020 across Canada and the United States. And so they were trying to compare bird abundance uh, and detection around urban areas, specifically large urban areas uh, that have and adjacent to large airports. So areas that you could theorize would have a real change in activity over the pandemic. And so they wanted to compare to see if the pandemic did have an impact on, on detectability of, of birds or, or bird populations in general. And what they found was that about 80% of, of 82 focal bird species changed their distribution in pandemic altered areas. Um, and it usually was uh, associated with an increase in comparison to pre-pandemic abundance. So in these large urban areas adjacent to these big airports, they were seeing more birds and they were seeing birds moving into areas and uh, were detected at, at, and, and found at higher abundances than they were during the pandemic. So, and it's really interesting, the mix of birds, right? So they, there's a few examples that are, are in the Globe article, like great blue heron, ruby-throated hummingbird, barn swallow, um, were all more abundant near roadsides and in, in uh, adjacent to urban areas than other things. But it wasn't all just a straight up increase. There were some that they actually found less of. And, and I thought this was, in, in some ways, one of the most interesting aspects. Red-tailed hawk actually seemed to have a negative relationship where they were seeing less <laughs> red-tailed hawks now in association with roads in adjacent to urban areas. And, and one of the, the theories that's, that was pointed out in the, in the paper that that might be due to the reduction in roadkill abundance or, or litter that attracts rodents. yeah that's right yeah, yeah. so I, I think it's a really interesting uh paper that people should check out and read i'd be interested to hear your opinion i think for me it really captures a couple you know big things right and i, and I know we talk and have talked on the podcast a lot about some of the big bird conservation issues that are out there like you know cats and window collisions and pesticides and plastics like there's there's a big list and we all know it um but road mortality we actually don't talk an awful lot about. Uh, one of the big first big papers published here in Canada in 2013, the Avian Conservation Ecology on Human-Caused Mortality Factors of Birds. It was one of the first big sweeping papers to look at all the different mortality factors affecting bird populations in, in Canada. It actually ranked road mortality right up there. And on average, about 2 million birds per mm. year get hit by cars, mm. get killed by cars. And <laughs> we don't talk about it a lot because it's not the the, the cats number and it's not the the window collisions but it is an important factor so i think this is actually this article is a great opportunity to just put that out there again that you know roads and mm -hmm. busy urban areas actually can be quite lethal 
for birds. And it's and it probably shouldn't be a surprise that when there are but there's less of us out and about in our vehicles and in our planes, the birds probably respond in in a in a positive way. I think it also underpins the value of urban areas for birds and that uh mm-hmm. and and that you know, not even just urban green spaces right but even just proximity to urban areas like there are birds in those places birds don't just live in far off remote areas yeah. like all those winter finches we always think of this vast and they are really sort of in a vast wilderness a lot of birds are in urban areas and i think we need to remember that and and we're not going to change our activity levels but we should be finding ways to help birds in urban in- environments. And maybe that's creating more green spaces or I'm not sure how you have influenced the road mortality, but anyway, that was a great, pa- that was yeah. a really interesting paper. Yeah. So there, there were two things that, that stuck out to me. Uh, the first one was that, you know, it's really neat to get some quantitative data to back up all the anecdotes that we had heard about there being more birds or louder birds or whatever in the uh, days uh, around the pandemic. So yeah, as you said, this is probably the first of a few papers that we'll see that that talk about this, which is, it's cool. And uh, two, you know, like, like many of us, you know, kind of with an environmental mindset, I have uh, no small bit of anxiety about things like uh, climate change. And uh, I am buoyed by this study that shows how quickly birds respond when they are given the opportunities that they didn't have before. And that has always been one of the things that I've always really admired about birds. You know, you give them a chance, you restore some habitat, you put up some nest boxes, you whatever. There's all these little things that people can do. Uh, and they, they come, they'll be there and they start breeding and they, they respond fast. Uh, and that has always been something I've really loved about them. I think this, this shows that as well. Nature's resilient. Nature is resilient. Cannoli our impact. <laughs> right. I yeah, mean, both side. in terms of our negative impact, but also what can we do more of yeah. to help help nature be resilient? Yeah. Um, and I say all of nature because I know that there are other um, anecdotes or studies that talk about just the general environment and habitat and things like that. But I remember being asked by journalists in like April of 2020, oh my gosh, how is, how's the pandemic impacting yeah, birds? Right. And we were like, we don't I don't know. know, it's too soon. <laughs> but now it's like, holy cannoli, yeah. look at all of this. Yeah. Um, and I, I think I want to go the next step um, and ask maybe a challenging question of like, how do we learn from this? How do we take mm. what what was good, what helped birds and, and the environment and apply that? Because I, I too, I, you know, super scared, super concerned about climate change and habitat loss and all of these other threats. So what can we take as a silver lining, maybe, from these studies and apply it and help us explore solutions to do better in the future? Mm-hmm. I mean, I loved what um, Jody was saying about urban stuff as well. And just that, like, we have found that there are ways to sort of integrate our human lives with bird lives. I mean be it like really focusing on your native habitat planting, ensuring that you're turning the lights out at night, bird safe glass. Um, I mean, obviously these aren't the things that are going to save bird populations and there's a ton of work that needs to be done sort of on a uh, societal scale and sort of at the highest level, but it does just demonstrate that we can live in harmony with wildlife. Um, And I think that that's really uh, heartwarming. Also Acadian flycatcher successfully bred in Prospect Park last year um, during the pandemic, which is like ridiculous. So yeah. I mean, that's just anecdotal, but who knows? <laughs> no, that's awesome. And and Ryan, I think you also were getting at something I think we all need to dig into a little bit more because I think we all know it, but we need to start doing it, which is all of us together. We always talk about individual actions, how to be bird friendly around your house and everything, which is great. There's tons of things you can do. We talk about these really large legislation things that the federal government can do um, or international organizations like Shout Out to Birds Canada and all of their partners, ABC and all of our partners. But we all seriously need to lock arms and like do this together. (laughs) Like the four of us on this podcast, and I know there's a lot of listeners too. No, no, no. We need to do all of it right now together Um, because that's the momentum and the, and the, volume, the literal volume that's needed to help these birds. One of the things that I've seen a lot in the last, just this fall, is the number of cities that are 
that are doing lights out programs. I, I think I've seen more this fall than I have ever seen altogether. And, you know, obviously with the big story, the, the stuff about the birds getting caught in the 9-11 memorial, that was a, a thing earlier this, this, uh, this month. I, I saw that get more press than I've ever seen it get before. People are listening. People are, are wanting opportunities to help birds. They want to take these actions. And, and a lot of these are so, like, this is, like, lights out. That's, like, low-hanging fruit. That's easy. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, imagine if maybe not all, but so many more cities had lights out mm-hmm. programs. Imagine if bird-friendly coffee could become the, like, the standard, standard default. Yeah. You know, there are these things that seem like, low-hanging fruit literally talking about coffee beans how do we do this yeah i feel like we know how to do this but can we do it can we do it now yeah and that's where i just want to go yeah yeah help the birds (laughs) and can we get people who aren't traditionally like bird friendly and wildlife can we make it so that Mm -hmm. you know governments for example it's not like you know the u.s government is full of bird watchers right there's a ton of folks we we need to convince them there's a reason to do this more than just because we like that wildlife is around. We, I mean, we need to be able to convince everybody to do this. And I mean, one thing that I also think is great about the um, sort of the tribute to light stuff is like, you know, the current solution that they have now really is one where they're working with the city. It's not like nobody's saying yeah. don't do the tribute in light. They're saying, you know, let's find a way so that we could coexist. Yeah. I'll just add one other thing, which sure. is I think that I also feel very passionate because all birders, all people can help birds. We can all be conservationists because there are cost-free. I know everything has a cost, but there are cost-free options out there. Mm. And maybe that's how we also can try to rally together as a larger community. And like, maybe it'd be really cool to get five-year-olds to have a chore of turning off the lights at night, or your 10-year-old is in charge of keeping your cat inside, or, you know, your teenager does an art project on your windows to avoid collisions. It doesn't take being over 18 with a lot of money Mm -hmm. to do something. And I think we don't focus on that a lot because I think we tend to go to this place of the bank accounts that can fund conservation or buying habitat. And that's really important. We still need that. But I think we also can say birds are for everyone and helping birds is for everyone too. I couldn't agree more. My last thought about this is I think there's some, there's some optimism with this paper. I I do, you know, Mm -hmm. I, I totally agree with Nate, like the thought that, you know, we could shut things down and birds would respond and birds would come back. And I think, boy, you know, we're really living in a, in a kind of a divisive time, right? And and I feel like what Jordan was saying, that we all need to be coming together for the birds. It couldn't be more true right now. And, and birds don't see borders, right? And they will respond to positive action. You know, there's everything we need there. We've got the, we've got the stats, right? We've got the data. Uh, I think we've, we've, done well at, at putting out the overwhelming impact that humans are, are having on, on bird populations. And this paper is a good reminder that we're affecting them in, in more ways than we even realize, right? Mm-hmm. But I think there is a positivity here that we can, we can learn from this. And I think Jordan's right. We have to all come together to, to do this. And organizations need to stop just working in silos uh, to try to achieve this and work work together you know and it's and no we shouldn't just wait for necessarily a big conservation organization to make these big changes it's it needs to be everyone it needs to be grassroots so that again i'm just really repeating a lot of the great points that ryan and jordan are saying look sometimes it needs it's important i think (laughs) what jordan says is, is bang on and we and we need to do that and i think we're gonna do that right like that's i think there's a lot of people like us out there that this is what these are the this is the positive change we want to make for birds. So let's do it. For the question of the month, I, I had a thing where I was going to do note that Peru redesigned their money and the 100 soles note has a marvelous special tale on it, which is very cool. Uh, I was going to ask, you know, your favorite bird money, if you've ever used some or seen it or whatever. Um, So feel free to answer that if you like. But in mind of this time of year, I'm actually going to turn to a much more interesting question that was asked by Chad Whitko on Twitter, who asks, uh, what is your one fall migration hotspot that you haven't been to that is on your birding bucket list? And I apologize for changing things up for you on such short notice. But uh, you can answer both if you like. 
Canada in the house, so Looney yeah. is the only acceptable the answer, answer. Yeah, both in terms of <laughs> Jody and my partner Gabriel, and River Raptors, Bear Cruz. Yeah, oh, that's a good one. When when is Gabriel going to take me? Yeah. I don't know, but we got to go. That's that's the epitome of fall migration in in what my mind is. I don't know if Mexico has any money with birds on it, but you could combine these two questions into one into one thing. That would be cool. <laughs> So I'm going to have to go for the money. I just saw that Bermuda's hundred like currency bill has a Northern Cardinal, which is an introduced species to Bermuda, it's, which I just thought was, so that was silly. Wild. Yeah. And it's a beautiful, beautiful Cardinal, but also just like, that's like us putting a freaking <laughs> starling on a bill. Um, I, as you know, am a huge fan of the boreal birds. So I'm going to have to mm-hmm. go with something like Hawk Ridge or Tadoussac. Some place where you can just like, oh, Tadasak actually is yeah. probably the one. Just like imagine being there before we even know what's going on with the finches and just hundreds of evening grosbeaks are coming by, like pine grosbeaks are flying by. Just some place where I could be right there in the action on uh, seeing the finch stuff go go live. Also, just being good Tadasak would be amazing, period. Yeah. I think a lot of people put Tadasak on their bucket list after seeing that amazing checklist from a couple of years ago. I think that was a spring checklist, but I've never, I cannot spring, believe, yeah. what was it, like a million yellow rump warblers or something like that? Unreal. Unreal. Yeah, so uh, loving the, the Canadian content so far in these these answers, so that's really, that's really <laughs> great. Um, yeah, yeah and, and I've got nothing original to say, so uh, because my answers have all been used up here, but... Uh, oh, no! Yeah, there you go. So... Um, uh, but okay, I'll say a couple things. I always loved that the, the Guatemalan money is called the Quetzal. Uh, I always just loved it. Like they just refer to the money as the Quetzal. Loved it. Love it. Still love it. Who wouldn't? Who wouldn't love five hundred Quetzals I, in their pocket? Yes, and and brings up a whole <laughs> host of questions. But uh, there's obviously great money on on uh, great great birds on on money out there, and I think um, you know New Zealand has wonderful birds on money like kokako on dollar bill like come on that's that's amazing um but canada did like canada we used to have uh old bird themes canadian money uh back in the 80s you know a five dollar bill had belted kingfisher on it like we had some really cool birds on on canadian money but of course the answer is loony right the loony is just the best right yeah really ashamed that i don't seem to ever use cash or coins anymore in any of my (laughs) financial transactions ever i just don't even see loonies anymore um which is kind of a shame um but migration migration spot i was gonna say tadoussac as well because it's it's been on there for a while even before the big checklist uh such a such a wonderful place there's there are lots of great migration spots like that in canada that are just hidden gems you know thunder cape on lake superior Mount Lorette here in Kananaskis, that the raptor migration there, like to see hundreds of golden eagles in a day constantly coming through, like that's some incredible stuff. But Tadoussac, absolutely great people, great location. I need to go. We should all go. Yeah. Yeah. Why not? They just recently opened the border to vaccinated Americans. So um, we can get up there now. So I, I have a couple. You mentioned New Zealand. That was such a good one. I mean, they have yellow eyed penguin on their on their money. Uh, on one of their denominations, which is unreal. I think all of their bills have have native New Zealand birds on it, which is which is great. I like Fiji because it has a Fiji petrel on it, which I thought is a really nice choice. And maybe Bermuda could have learned from that a little bit and put a put a cahow on their dollar instead of a cardinal. But uh, no, live and learn. Um, as far as fall migration hotspots, um, this one is very much inspired by uh, a friend of mine who is currently in. Uh, California doing a bunch of pelagics out of Half Moon Bay and Monterey Bay. Oh, I would love to. I would love to get out there and see some see some albatrosses and those massive flocks of storm petrels and maybe some whales. Dude, that would be. I've I've never done that. Did I, you, I was just that. out in. Uh, I was just out and did a Half Moon Bay pelagic, and it was off the oh, hook. We had so yeah. many good. We had Lazon albatross. Hundreds of black storm petrels, just like I, you know, flush footed shearwater, hate the name, love the bird, uh, short tailed <laughs> shearwater, just like incredible birds. And then the next day they, they had yeah. a, uh, Guadalupe merlet or something. Yeah. My friend posted some photos of Guadalupe merlet. From that was the day before that I went on there. Oh, I guess. Yeah. Anyway, it was unreal. Yeah. Shout out to your pictures too. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yes. 
Follow me on Flickr or Instagram or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you all so much. Uh, As usual, I'll have links to all of your your work, all of your places. Um, It was always a pleasure to talk to all three of you. I'm glad to have you back. And I hope that you all have a a great fall. There's still a little bit more to come. Uh, October sparrow season, right? Sparrow season? At least it is where I am. It is in New York. Getting ready for goals. Goals. Oh, God. (laughs) And finches. Great chatting with everyone. That was really great. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. Support this podcast and all of our free resources for birders by supporting the ABA with your membership. You get our magazines, you get discounts to our partners, you get the knowledge that you are helping to build a better birding community here in the ABA area and around the world. Get information at aba.org slash join. I have some shout outs to make this week to Melissa Hine from North Branch, Minnesota, Sally Freeberg from Running Springs, California, Jenny McFarland and Richard Frey of Rio Rico, Arizona, Lisa Keitel of St. Paul, Minnesota, Aiden Mushler of Webster, New York, Darren Urbanowski and family of Bellingham, Washington, Martha Mealy of Portland, Oregon, Donna Cooper of Andover, Massachusetts, Joan Smallwood and family of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Jeremy Prendyville of Camarillo, California, Nancy Hand and Chris Maglioni of Tucson, Arizona, Andrew DeMarco of Washington, D.C., Chris Ido of Coburg, Ontario, and Cassie Karstens of Hogsback, South Africa. Africa, who notes that it's still nice to have exposure to general birding issues that are applicable in South Africa. I did not even know we did that. I appreciate that, Cassie, and everyone else who joined the ABA recently and noted the podcast as a reason. Thank you. Y'all are great. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon, who is always going to involuntarily flail his arms if a large flying insect gets too close. So be warned if you're nearby. That is the flinch forecast. Technical production is by John Lowry, who's losing weight. He has to make a little new hole in his belt to keep his pants up. That's your cinch forecast. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who marked up the blueprint to the ABA offices and assigned a different eruptive winter bird to each room in what they are calling, for some reason, the Finch floor plants. You can find us at ABA.org on Facebook and Twitter as American Birding Association or ABA. Hey! For you sports fans out there, the Toronto Blue Jays magic number to get into the baseball playoffs is eight as of the recording of this podcast, which some might call a a boreal clinch forecast. I'm so sorry, especially if I've jinxed them. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for tolerating that. Stay healthy. Until next week.